Back in the 90s, there were soundtracks that were in everyone's collection. They were albums that defined what pop culture was, filled with songs that would be played over and over on TV and radio. They became the soundtracks not just of the movie, but of our lives at the time. The movie itself? Not so much. Or were they? With that said, we're here to prove to you that Empire Records is not that bad. Welcome, welcome one and all to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A grades in B movies. Now, dear listeners, every now and then I have to get on the microphone and I have a little confession. And no, it's not because my voice is a little rough today. Here is my confession. Dear listeners, I have sinned. I have gone as long as I have in life since the year 1995 without watching Empire Records. I know, I know, I know, it's a sin. It's a sin, but I have atoned because it is time to talk about that seminal 1995 classic. And here to join me down this road for the first time on this podcast, it's Jacob from the Dragons in Genesis podcast. Jacob, how are you doing today? I'm good. Uh, it's Jason. Oh. Uh, I've got a friend named Jacob and he's kind of a jerk. So don't confuse me with him. <laughs> uh, but no, no, it, it seems like all great people are named Jason. Uh, so, I, I will attest yeah. to that. Yes, since how I am a Jason. I apologize. I apologize, uh, but welcome to the show. How you doing, man? I'm good. Uh, it's it's kind of a lazy weekend. My girlfriend is sick, so I'm like spending most of my time taking care of her and the rest of it playing video games. Uh, so so yeah, it's uh, it's it's an all right weekend. I'm uh, I'm taking it easy, and uh, you know, just finished a seventy hour work week, so I could use a break. Uh, I hear breaks are good. I hear breaks are very very good. Plus seventy hours. That's doing the math here and do you sleep i'm, I'm just i'm just wondering here because that's that seems like a lot of work yeah uh, apparently i do sleep at <laughs> some point i'm not sure when uh because when i'm when i'm not working i'm doing research for my own podcast and then i try to have something of a social life and uh, i don't know I, sleep gets in there somehow so I, I don't know. <laughs> now, for those who have not had a chance to listen to your podcast yet, before we get into talking about the movie, tell us a little bit about Dragons in Genesis. So Dragons in Genesis is a monthly, I guess you could call it like a Bible study podcast, but it's going to be a bit different than anything you're used to. The show isn't told from a, uh, a religious perspective where a pastor is trying to convert you to their particular theology. It's more of, um, it, it's more of like a, a literary and comparative mythology approach. So if you want to learn about, you know, like what are the stories in the Bible about? Where did they come from? Were they inspired by any older tales? What did they mean at the time that they were written and how were they used? That's what the show is about. Um, it, it's it's just a uh, an in-depth look at all the chapters of the Bible, like nothing gets skipped. And um, we go into like different variations on the text uh, and even books that weren't included in every copy of the Bible. Uh, books like Bell and the Dragon and the books of Maccabees and First Enoch, things like that, that you may have heard of or maybe not, uh, but books that probably aren't in the copy of the Bible that you have at home. So that, that's what the show is. Now, when we first started talking about this, you were like, let's talk about Empire Records. A, I'm not going to lie. I was surprised that this movie actually qualified. But what is it about this movie that made you want to like grab the nearest sharp pointy stick and defend it like your life depended on it? Uh, the fact that it is one of the best movies that has ever been made and anyone who disagrees is just wrong i mean it's it's not an opinion it's just a matter of fact um but the 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 writing in this movie the characters the presentation the setting everything is really well done and there's actually some a lot of like little subtle things in there and some nuance that 
you probably won't notice the first time you watch it. Uh, but it's some of those things that really make the movie hold up over time, where many other films kind of fall apart as the decades roll on. Okay, well... Again, this was for me a very first time watch, although I fully admit that I had the CD in my collection like pretty much everybody else. But before we get into Empire Records, it is time to take this 1995 zeitgeist type film and trailerize it. In 1995, one movie dared to show us that which we were not ready to see challenged us with 90 minutes of a reality we were not ready for. A world we could not comprehend. A place where people liked their jobs, looking forward to going to work, and even had fun doing menial labor that you knew they were getting paid minimum wage for. Enter Empire Records, an independent record store about to be swallowed up by the insatiable monster that is Big Corporate, on the verge of being crapped out the franchise butthole of the beast. The only thing standing in the way of the dreaded orange smock is a group of teenagers juggling day-to-day life and five seasons worth of Saved by the Bell level conflict and a manager who is just done with everything. So done. It's Empire Records, rated PG-13. For please, God, don't ever sing Say No More, Mon Amour, ever, ever again. <laughs> nice. I like that one. That that should be the official trailer. Right? Honestly, movie companies should just hire this podcast to do all the trailers for them. That would work yeah. out well. But let's get into who's in this film. This film stars Anthony LaPaglia, Rory Cochran, Ethan Embry, Johnny Whitworth, Robin Tunney, Renee Zellweger, Liv Tyler, perhaps the coolest name in, in the history of cool names, Coyote Shivers, Brandon Sexton, Maxwell Caulfield, Debbie Mazar, and James Kimo Wills. But it also almost starred Toby Maguire mm-hmm. as a character named Andre, but apparently his scenes were deleted because this film was apparently two and a half hours and they had to cut it down, which I don't know if everyone's ready to watch Empire Records for two and a half hours. <laughs> Yeah, there, there's actually an extended version you can find. Uh, you can find the regular version and the extended, both on YouTube. Uh, the extended, you have to watch a couple of commercials with it. Uh, there are a couple of little scenes that I like in the extended version, but overall, I prefer the theatrical release better. Now, I will admit that I watched the, I guess, the the fan version or whatever on on prime video as this was the the one that i had available to me but it was still pretty darn good uh it was directed by alan moyle uh perhaps best known for pump up the volume but also directed new waterford girl and jailbait also jailbait another one of those soundtracks where i had the album never watched the movie there was actually an award for this film at the 1997 ASCAPs, the song Till I Hear It From You won for most performed songs for motion pictures, and I think it probably goes down as still played so often because that is a great song. However, oh, yeah. despite how much money it made from the soundtrack, because you know it made bank off of that, it didn't make that money at the box office. According to Wikipedia, this film had a budget of $10 million, and according to IMDb, it had a worldwide box office of $273,188. Like, whoo, for the record, when this film debuted on the September 22nd weekend of 1995, according to BoxOfficeMojo.com, it debuted at number 17, ahead of... I'm just going to put this out there ahead of A Month by the Lake, which was also premiering that week, Canadian Bacon in its premiere week, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation. Now, for the record, the top two movies also in their debut that week. At number one was Seven. Okay, no problems. Seven was a phenomenal film. At number two was Showgirls. So Empire Records 
couldn't beat Showgirls at the box office. Now, there is an asterisk on this, however. On that release weekend, Empire Records was only released in 87 theaters as opposed to the 1,388 that Showgirls was in. So there's a huge discrepancy. You're obviously not going to make as much money if you're only in 87 theaters. But that means that the film actually had a per theater average of $1,733, which if you actually rate the box office by that statistic, it finished in 10th. And it only lasted two weeks in theaters. Now, if you think that the production company and the studios were upset, consider this. According to Wikipedia, Regency Enterprises, which made this film, passed on another script that they were handed because they had already greenlit Empire Records. Like, you know what? We're going to stick with this teen film. We'll pass on that teen film. That teen film was Clueless. They passed on Clueless for Empire Records. And that movie made bank. Like, absolute bank. Which... (laughs) Again, another one of those films where you probably had the soundtrack and maybe didn't watch the movie. But I'm curious, before we get into why we're here, which is the critic score, which would you rate higher, Empire Records or Clueless? Oh, Empire. I'll be honest, I never finished Clueless. I think I've tried watching it like three times. Uh, One, like the the first time that I actually kind of heard about about the movie. I tried to watch it, couldn't really get into it. And then I dated a girl who absolutely loved the movie and she tried to get me to watch it twice. I think I fell asleep the first time and the second time she just stopped the movie because she could tell I was bored. Um, (laughs) I just, I never could get into Clueless and I I honestly gave it a try and I just couldn't. Um, So I may not be the best person to ask about (laughs) that opinion. Uh, It looked well made. It just wasn't my thing. Well, I think Regency Enterprises, you know, appreciates the vote of confidence you put in their decision behind Empire Records. But the reason why we're here is because this film actually does qualify. Over at Metacritic, this film has a meta score of 36. And over on Rotten Tomatoes, it shouldn't surprise you that the audience score is 83%. But but the tomatometer, a paltry 31%. Now... I'm not going to lie. I thought it would, I I didn't think this movie qualified. I didn't, I don't know if I expected it to be about 83%, but I definitely did not expect 31%. So upon hearing that rating, your thoughts. As far as the audience score, I'm not surprised at all. Everyone I know who has seen this movie loves it. And it doesn't seem to matter what generation they're from. Like I know people that are my mom's age who love this film and I've introduced it to people who were born years after this film was released, and they love it. Uh, I don't know of a single person who says it's an okay film, and certainly no one who hates it. As far as Rotten Tomatoes, I don't know. Maybe they were drunk that day. Maybe they're Rex Manning fans, you know, and they didn't like his treatment in the film. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I'm guessing the people who give this a bad score, I think they really like his hair. And that that's all I can say about it. They, they must be those kinds of people. Okay. More drastic haircut. Rex Manning in this film or Metallica on the Load album? Oh, man, that's a tough one. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to go with Rex Manning. It, I mean, there were human beings walking around during the time that Load was released that had hair resembling that. But I don't know if anyone after like 1982 had hair like Rex Manning. That's I, I think John Bon Jovi is looking at that going, yeah, keep the faith. I remember that era. Um, but <laughs> let's get into the breakdown of this film. We're going to start with the boss himself, Anthony LaPaglia as Joe Reeves. How was he for you in this role? Oh, I loved him. This was the first movie that I saw him in. Uh, I've seen him in, you know, several things since then. But uh, I thought he was a great boss. I was like, okay, th- this guy nailed the 
the cool boss who's trying to look out for his employees um, and is sort of like in this tough situation. And I, I thought he pulled off the role really well. There are a number of times where I'm watching his reaction to whatever his employees are doing. I'm just like, yep, he's done. He's done. Yeah. But I think the interesting thing, though, is that in Joe, I kind of see someone who was probably, you know, the same kind of person that he hires at the store. So at the same time as he's trying to give these kids an opportunity, an opportunity that he probably wishes he had or did have growing up. But I have a feeling it's one of those things where he's seeing all this and going, oh, wait, that was me. I should just hang my head in shape. And I, I wonder if that's the case, because obviously this is a bit of a, you know, a time compressed type film, like everything happens really in the same day. So I'm just wondering if if we had that kind of backstory, if Joe really was just like them and now was shaking his head because he's realizing just how much like them he was. Yeah, I, I got the same impression. Uh, and what's weird is like there's nothing overt in the film about that, but there are little like subtle cues that are in there. You know, like the fact that the guy, you know, he plays the drums to kind of depressurize. Um, you know, he listens to a lot of the same music that they're listening to. Uh, you know, and then, you know, he's got this connection with Lucas, you know, one of the main characters in that he actually adopted the kid you know, uh, when he was in foster care, you know, and kind of took him under his wing. And so it's like, you, you really see that he does have this sort of connection. And I think it can be inferred that he is basically a grown up version of the people who work in his store. I, I, maybe it's just me. And I, I recognize that the film was originally two and a half hours and I do appreciate the need to cut down for, for a theater release, but there are times when I'm sitting there going, I wish Joe explained a bit more or just spoke up more that told us more about his backstory and the reason why he connects with these kids. Like when they're doing Deborah's fake funeral, which funny as hell, um, you know, and people just starting telling these, you know, messed up stories about themselves to kind of connect with Deborah. Um, that would have been a perfect spot for Joe, but I also don't know if we want that scene to go on too, too long and take away from the character development that it provided for Deborah. But I mean, Joe is definitely one of those characters that maybe you didn't need too much backstory, but but Anthony LaPaglia's performance as him gave you enough, at least connection, I think, to what you could infer from his backstory. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely am in agreement on that. But you mentioned Lucas, so let's move on to Rory Cochran. Um, the 90s philosopher. Was this kind of a trope <laughs> for you, for his character? Um, at first, sort of, but then I kind of saw something that I think many people may have missed with Lucas. Um, and it gets into almost a sort of like meta realm. Uh, so with Lucas, you have this guy who's sort of disconnected from everyone else. He has these really strange observations that while they may ring true, they're not the sort of things that other people tend to notice. He also misses a lot of things, you know, like when, whenever he's talking to people, he seems completely oblivious to a certain bits of like interpersonal relationship. But at the same time, he notices things that goes completely unnoticed by everyone else. You know, like um, a perfect example would be when he's sitting all the way in the back of the store, but through the windows of the, the doors, he's able to spot a shoplifter when no one else in the front of the store even has a clue. Uh, but then at the same time, he can completely miss things, you know, uh, especially dealing with like interpersonal stuff like he he sort of like takes things too far sometimes he also uh when he loses nine grand that he took from the store he wonders if he's going to be held responsible for it and he also takes things extremely literally like when he's told not to leave the couch and then he spends the rest of the movie either on the couch or carrying around a couch cushion and it makes me wonder like it, was he supposed to just be sort of like the traditional like 90s 
you know, teen philosopher guy that kind of popped up in some of the movies around the time. Or if the writers didn't realize that they accidentally based him off of an autistic friend. Because the more you look at that character, I'm thinking they had an autistic friend that they might not have known was autistic, and they wrote him into the story. It's very, very possible because you you have like almost like the, again, the 90s wardrobe tropes, right? Your philosopher is wearing a black turtleneck or long sleeve and, you know, has the hair, you know, close crop kind of thing. Like he he feels like the caricature of, of that character in many different movies around that time. But to the same token as well, as far as as much as Lucas and the, the gambling thing as far as, uh, by the way, uh, if you haven't watched Empire Records like me prior to yesterday, spoilers like a mofo. So anyways, um, so he takes the $9,000 and however much. But the funny thing is it's very exact to the dollar and knowing exactly how much. So I do wonder, you might be spot on on that one. But but I think Lucas's role, not as much as a linchpin for the problems that he causes with the with the actions in the first scene... He's there to humanize Joe. And I think that's why I really, you know, I really enjoyed Anthony LaPaglia's performance because the two of them play it off each other very, very well. There's those, there's those looks, right? Where, especially when Joe starts to put like the, just the wad of papers and it's not money into the, uh, into the drop bag. Um, and just the, the, the knowing look between him and Lucas, it's, it's a very humanizing role for the other characters around him. Yeah. Yeah. Every time one of them, uh, whether it's Joe or Lucas, every time one of them is in trouble, the other one just kind of pops in to bail them out, you know, and you, you see this going back and forth between the two throughout the film, you know, like every time, uh, Mitch, the, the owner pops up and Joe is put on the spot. Lucas steps in to distract him. So Joe can find a way out. You know, and then, of course, you know, when when Joe thinks that Lucas is in trouble. Is there a way I can help? You know, are you in trouble? You know, you can come to me. Uh, and so, yeah, that that relationship, um, you know, it's very it seems to be subtle in the movie, but it's definitely present. And that's one of the reasons I like it so much. Now, if we're talking 90s trope characters, we got to talk about Mark with a K not with a C, as played by Ethan Embry. He <laughs> um, Obviously, he's the goofy stoner in this. And the, the list of goofy, you know, movies with goof, uh, goofy stoners in it. I mean, you just, all you have to do is go back to Days and Confused. And, well, that's almost everybody in that movie. But here's the only guy who, until Lucas at the end, breaks the fourth wall. Was that odd to you? Like how he's the only one up until the end? Um, I don't know. Not really. Uh, I, I just thought that it kind of just fit with the movie. Um, I mean, it, I guess, it, you know, thinking about it, that is a bit odd. But um, I mean, the, the, the way the movie is, it's like, yes, yeah, sometimes, you know, Lucas is going to talk to the camera. And, you know, you've got this guy who's stoned half the time. I guess he can, too. <laughs> Although that being said, uh, I have to give full kudos to the appearance of Guar and the late Dave Brocky, who was, of course, odorous, uh, odorous Arungus, uh in that whole bad trip scene with the uh, with the very special recipe in the brownie. Um, but how was Mark for you, though? Aside from the, the the fourth wall breaking, how was he for you? Uh, that was another one. I while he was a very you know, stereotypical 90s character, you know, that you could see pop up in a ton of films. There was a certain amount of nuance that you have in this film that isn't always present in these other films. Because normally the, the, the goofy stoner is just there for comic relief. But it was a little bit different for Mark. Um, and that gets into one of the reasons why I like the film so much is that no matter how many characters they crammed into the movie, which there are a lot, uh, every single character wants something in the film. They're not just there, you know, for some random reason, like for comic relief. All of the characters are their own little people who want the, 
their own things. They all have agency. And, you know, you, you learn about it typically pretty early in the film, what each person wants. And the whole movie is about them trying to get what they want all in the course of one day. And normally your typical stoner in a 90s film was just there for comic relief and they didn't really have much of a purpose beyond that. But Mark, he did. He he kind of felt almost like a person who was just there for comic relief. And he wanted to show everyone that he was more than that, that he was actually important. And of course, by the end of the film, he does. He It turns out he's actually the most important one because everyone there is trying to save the store. And no matter how much they all tried and no matter how much power each of them had, including Joe, the manager, none of them were able to do it. And then Mark pops in and delivers over half of his lines for the entire film at the very end and saves the entire store, you know? And so it was like, he was kind of a tropey character, but he was almost, you know, like, a, um, you know, he was a distinct variant on that trope um, and, and took it in a completely different direction. And while these other characters were, uh, other stoner characters were indeed um, just tropes and didn't have much purpose, he very much did. And that was actually the thing he wanted. He wanted the stoner character to have a purpose. Oh, so, was- yeah. I, I love I love that idea with it because it it definitely broke the mold on that trope. Yeah, I mean it's definitely that that moment when he goes out to talk to the news reporter and you know he goes on TV says "Damn the man, save the empire." And I think that's also one of those things where it sh- it shows to Joe just how much the store and that you know for lack of a better term family uh, means to each of them. And how they're in their own way doing their best to to keep that environment, to keep that connection, and to keep that store going as long as they can. Yeah, and I, I think that little scene it, it plays out really quickly, just a few seconds. Um, I think it was like set up really well because in the very beginning of the movie, Mark is telling Joe that one day he's going to show those people, and Joe's reaction is, you know. Well, when that day happens, you know, like, let me know, you know, so I can get up out of my wheelchair or whatever. Because, like, basically, he doesn't believe that it's ever actually going to happen. And then all the way at the end of the film, it does happen. And you get to see Joe's reaction to it when suddenly, you know, Mark is the one stepping up to do what no one else could. Um, You know, and like Mark's like light bulb moment when they they're the reporters outside, you know, about the armed robbery and everything. And he's just like, Oh my God, hang on. And he runs out of the store. And then you have that whole scene. He delivers like pretty much all of his lines right there. And then the, the music uh, plowed by sponge kicks in and you're like, okay, now the whole movie is finally coming together and it happens very rapidly, but it doesn't feel rushed, you know, cause it's, They've been building up to this one moment for the entire film. Uh, and that that's that's just amazing writing right there. Oh, and trust me, when Sponge kicks in, I'm all ears because Sponge is a phenomenal, phenomenal band. And if you've ever had the chance to see them live, and they are still together and still touring today, please do, by all means, go check out Sponge. They are worth the price of admission. Let's move yeah, on. I saw them about... 12, 13 years ago uh, at a casino concert in Louisiana and amazing. Uh, their, their music could restart the heart of a dying person. You know, you may need defibrillators or you could just put it on headphones, turn on plowed and it'll just get your blood pumping again. I mean, I remember going down to uh, Louisville, Kentucky and uh, it was the, the last concert I got to see before the pandemic hit. Uh, and it was Sponge and the Nixons together. And so if you're looking oh, for nice. like for great 90s rock, that concert provided it in spades. Uh, got a chance to talk to uh, the, the bassist from Sponge afterwards. Like, like really, really cool guys. Absolutely. Nice. Nice. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. 
Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. So let's move on to Johnny Whitworth as AJ. And I'm going to ask you, before before I ask for your take on AJ here, were you not getting Joe Curie vibes from Free Guy as you know, watching this performance? I've never seen that movie, so I can't give my opinion on that. Um, <laughs> so, here's, but, so here's time for your confession and not watching Free Guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there haven't been a lot of movies uh in the last like you know five years or so that i've been able to see uh i've been pretty busy so um i'm behind on a few things well now now that you've heard that now you're going to watch free guy and go i get it now but how was johnny whitworth for you um i i thought he did a good performance and especially at making uh, a main character like the lead protagonist be like a cool guy that's also a bit of an ass you know he like he kind of treats some of his friends like a dick and i think we've all known someone like that someone that everybody loves but you know sometimes he's kind of a prick to the people around him you know like uh when he decides to exercise his veto uh when mark picks the song that they use to open um he doesn't just do that he then takes the cd out and he burns it with a cigarette lighter so that Mark can't play his music again, you know? Um, or when, um, when Corey is kind of having her breakdown, he's just like, you know, screw this. I'm out. And just kind of bails on her, you know? And like, I get it. There was a lot of stuff going on in that scene. You know, he had his own thing going on, but he totally just like marched away while his friend is crying. And it's like, dude. Uh, but at the same time, he's the guy that everyone in the store loves. Uh, and so I, I thought he did a good job portraying that type of person because most people are like, oh man, AJ's awesome. And it's like, but is he though? <laughs> yeah, he's cool, but he's also kind of a prick. Um, and I, th- I think he did a good job playing that because you're like, yeah, I love this character. And then after you've seen it a few times, you're like, man, I knew a guy just like that and I couldn't stand him. (laughs) (laughs) He is very much the lovelorn, hopeless romantic artist. Again, uh, feeling like a 90s trope here. But I mean, this is where I think more backstory really could have done these characters well because, you know, when we first meet AJ, he's telling Joe that today's the day. He's going to tell Corey how he feels about her and all that. And then we don't really see any connection between him and Corey till that that scene on the rooftop. And it's like, I, I get he feels almost like the older brother in the 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 quote unquote family dynamic of the of all the employees, which is why, like, you know, when um, when Burko shows up and he's trying to figure out what happened to Deborah, um, you know, that that felt like it should have been a bit more intense, like he already saw that she's got bandages on her wrist. Um, and Burko and Deborah are together, which I think they were, I guess. I don't know. It's, you know. It wasn't really as clear as day. But it just seemed like 
he had one purpose in this movie. That was to tell Corey how much he felt about her. But because we didn't see them together really until that point during the movie, it took some of the the importance out of that moment for for him. Yeah, yeah. I think this is one of those areas where the movie could have benefited from some more screen time because there are a lot of characters in this film. Um, and while it is cool that all of them have something that they're trying to attain, when you're dealing with, you know, 90 minutes, you're going to have to leave some stuff on the cutting room floor and some of it may have helped you understand the importance of it. And I, I do think that uh, a little more screen time for AJ and Corey, especially earlier in the film, uh, would have you know really helped that particular scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, this movie was definitely, you know, the movie that catapulted Liv Tyler as Corey to like, you know, the, the, the national attention here. But how was she for you as Corey? I think you could kind of tell that she was, you know, kind of just starting off as an actor. I mean, before this, she was just like in the Aerosmith videos. I, I don't recall if she was in anything else prior to, uh, to empire records there, there were a couple of scenes uh, especially when she was like alongside renee zellweger where it, it's obvious that you know renee zellweger is a much better actress at that time but i thought she did an okay job uh like i said there, there's a couple scenes where you can kind of tell that this was really early in her career but she was okay uh, I've certainly seen a lot worse, especially in movies at that time. Yeah. So, so I'm not going to say her performance was bad, not by <laughs> any stretch, but if you're looking at it, you know, uh, like when she's on the rooftop with AJ at the very end, when he finally gets the sign working, um, you know, and she's like really, you know, kind of angry and stuff and, you know, trying to get her stuff worked out. You're like, mm, it's, it kind of feels a bit forced. Uh but it's like little things. You kind of have to be looking for them. So now for reference, uh, in 1994, she was in a film called silent fall. And, uh, the same year that empire records came out, she was in a film called heavy. So, uh, chronologically, this is her third film. (sighs) Okay. I'm going to break some brains here. Okay. And I'm going to draw a reference to another film that we have already mentioned on this episode. In this movie, as Corey, Liv Tyler is literally Jesse Spano from Saved by the Bell. Think about mm-hmm. it. She is tall, beautiful, smart, taking uppers to be able to get through her work. And then seeing how her next film was Stealing Beauty, that means she appeared naked in her later her next film. Very similar to uh, a certain actress, Elizabeth Berkley, in Showgirls. Um can't believe I actually went or made that connection, but here we are. But it, it, it's very true, though. Like, we joked around earlier about the whole Saved by the Bell season's worth of, of problems. This is one of those things where it felt like they were kind of taking little bits here and there from a show like that and putting those complications into some of these characters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it's You you have this whole, um, I don't know, it, it's just like this this whole sort of environment where, you know, the, these sorts of things are appearing in movies and TV shows. Uh, I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, or don't remember what the nineties felt like, you know, and you, you had a bunch of angst, you, you had a bunch of fear about the future. You also had a lot of energy, you know, people, uh, there was a lot of uh, sort of like repression going on in the 80s and people were kind of breaking out of that. And there was like this frantic energy as people were trying to express that. At the same time, you also had a lot of horrible things going on in the world and people, you know, were also worried about a lot of different things. And so you you had all of these different emotions kind of all rolled into one along with, you know, this whole uh, musical renaissance happening at the time. And all of this was sort of like culminating into this one decade 
of extraordinary change. And a lot of that was being expressed in, you know, movies and TV shows at the time. And so, yeah, it, it doesn't really surprise me that you're seeing a lot of those things because I think it is very much a product of that decade. Well, when you think about just how much people were leaning on to music at the time, you know, again, you had movies of, you know, of 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 almost self-discovery surrounded by music movies like singles movies like reality bites um like these were movies about people growing up in an era and basically a slacker generation for lack of a better term uh and the music was really definitely conveying that uncertainty you know i mean the entire seattle grunge scene around that time you know allison chains and nirvana and the fact that they 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 sold an allison chains poster on you know that that night trying to raise money like that that just tells you the moment that they're in despite this being actually one of the happier sounding soundtracks of that time like you compare this soundtrack to the soundtrack of singles and it is very tonally different. You know, you've got Allison Chains, you know, cranking it in on singles. Then you've got the Gin Blossoms, which is, you know, one of the happier sounding bands around that time. Um, like, A, putting on one of their best songs ever. But, and then a song like uh, A Girl Like You from Edwin Collins. And, you know, the the song from Sugar High. or uh, Yeah, Sugar High at the end. Um it's it's a it's a much happier soundtrack than some of the some of the conflict with the characters in the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, and what's weird is it didn't feel out of place. The music all fit the scenes perfectly, even though a lot of the stuff the characters are going through was a bit darker, and the music is a bit lighter. It still meshed really well, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to Renee Zellweger, who played Gina, uh, Corey's best friend in this, even though, of course, they had an out at the end here. Um, it's perfect that Renee Zellweger's in this, because when you consider before this, she was in Days to Confuse, then Reality Bites, right? So, again, an actress of that generation, for sure, and still doing very well. Um, it, it felt weird, though. Like, after yes, Corey's reaction after the whole Rex Manning incident you know, lashing out at, at Gina felt odd. But then you've got Gina then going, all right, well, in, in that case, I'm going to go have sex with, with, with Rex. Like, that angle seemed odd to me. Was is, was it just me or, or did it make sense to you? Yeah, it, it, it felt a bit odd. That was like the only part of the movie where I felt that they were kind of writing something in just to move the story along instead of the characters moving the story along. Um, You know, like, I don't know. It it was, that particular part felt forced. Um, So yeah, I I agree with that. I mean, I loved her in it. I mean. Oh yeah, yeah. I think she did a great performance. Yeah. I think the only other actress who probably could have pulled that role off at that time was maybe Joey Lauren Adams. But that's about it. Like, you know, Gina's a happy character, even though she might be, you know, filling her time with things because she does, she's not feeling complete. Like each one of these characters feels like people we all knew back in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, now the only thing I think a way that you could look at that particular scene between uh, Corey and Gina and then Gina's follow-up actions would be her getting back at Corey, you know, cause like in that scene, you know, Corey comes to her and, you know, she's sad, you know, she feels like her life is going even more out of control. Cause like that's whole, her whole big thing, you know, she wants some agency in her own life and she simply doesn't have it. And the one time she kind of tries, it, doesn't work out for so then she goes to her best friend and you know after that Corey kind of treats her like crap and just calls her a slut and so i guess gina running off to rex could make sense in that gina is like okay well fine i'll you know like it wasn't really a thing that she wanted to do but something that she did to kind of get back at 
Corey for treating her like crap. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I could see that. I think it needed a little more development to, to kind of get you there, you know, but I, I, I could see it. You got 90 minutes. You got to squeeze it all in. Uh, yeah. but then you got Robin Tunney who plays Deborah, you know, the, the, the angsty girl who comes in and, and shaves her head and pulls the full Britney Spears. How was she for you? Uh, that, that's another one that I liked. Um, because you've you've got this thing where stuff is going on off screen and it it's messing with the character and I, I thought she did a good job portraying someone who uh, was suffering from depression felt helpless in her own life and also uh, she kind of she expressed that abandonment uh, that her character was experiencing and I, I thought that she you know, pull it off, especially in the scene where she's sitting in the, uh, the, the little like sound booth and she's working on the taxes and, uh, Joe comes to check on her and he's like, he's trying to help and he doesn't really know what to do. And of course, if you've ever been around anyone who suffers from depression, you know, that they almost can't accept help. And so when you try to help them, it's almost like they just keep pulling further away and you, you see her do this perfectly. You know, um, he's like, you know, Hey, you know, should I call someone, you know, should I call your mom? And she's just like, well, yeah, if you can find her, give me your number. Cause I'd love to talk to her. And it's like, he, he's trying to help her. And she's just in this dark place where you just can't reach her. And the more you reach for her, the more she withdraws. And I think she delivered that really well uh, from like the moment she walks on set to the very end of the movie. Um, I, I thought she she portrayed and that was really a different role for her. You know, cause you watch her in something like uh, Encino Man or The Craft or any of these other movies she was in. It's a very different role from what you're used to. Uh but I, I thought that she brought a certain nuance to it that you might not expect from one of these 90s films. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's this moment during the, the, the fake funeral where everyone is starting to just tell the, you know, the odd stories about themselves to connect. And that's the thing, too. Like, you know, Deborah isn't the kind of character that's going to take compliments well. She's not the kind of character who's going to, you know, connect to niceness. It's when people start to admit their own failings. That's when she really comes out. And, you know, when she's, you know, she she pulls the bandages off her arm and she starts talking about what happened and what she did. And she's just staring down the barrel of the lens like she can't connect to anybody else in that moment. But the tear starts rolling down. Like, it's a really, really powerful moment for, for Robin Tunney in this as an actress. Yeah. And you, you hit on something there where you talk about how, um, you know, when people are like trying to give compliments or anything, you know, you can't reach her. But at this, but when they start talking about like flaws and things like that, then she starts to open up. You see this perfectly spelled out in the relationship between her and Corey. Everyone in the story loves, everyone in the store loves Corey except for her. She absolutely hates her deb hates Corey. can't stand her because of all the people in the store she's the most fake you know she's pretending that everything is fine and you know sunshine and rainbows and deb can see through it he you know she she knows that it's crap uh she and lucas both see through this and she she kind of hates her for that but then when Corey has her breakdown Everyone is standing there just dumbfounded. No one knows what to do. And it's Deb who goes to the person she can't stand. And she's the one who takes care of her. And this is one of those scenes that uh, is better to watch in the extended version because Corey finally just kind of, you know, she she completely breaks down. It's even more dramatic in the extended version. And no one knows what to do and it's deb who comes in she's like hey joe let me take care of her i can do this and then she like grabs Corey and like basically drags her out of the room and then she's the one who puts her back together because it's like okay you know you're just as messed up as i am 
now we have this connection. Now I understand you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's a thing that you see, you know, play out again with the other characters in the funeral scene where it's like, okay, you know, now people are starting to relate to her because she, she's messed up. She's damaged. She's been abandoned by pretty much everyone. And she has a very difficult time relating to the people or even connecting to the people around her. And when the people show that they also have their flaws and their struggles, that's when she starts to open up to them. And so, yeah, it's, it's that, it's that brilliance in writing, you know, that you, you see little snippets of it here and there. And it shows like, it's not just a nineties movie about music and the record store. It's, it's got a lot of intricate layers to it. Mm-hmm. One of the things, obviously, when when I'm researching for these shows, uh, you know, I, I plunder through the the trivia section of IMDb and Wikipedia, and as I'm doing my research for this episode, I come across this note about uh, Coyote Shivers, who played Burko, and the fact that he at the time was married to BB Newell which made him Liv Tyler's stepfather. Mm. Just had to put that out there. But how was Coyote Shivers for you in this? Um, he, I, I kind of wish that he'd had a little bit more screen time. Um, he, he still sort of has his own agency. You know, he comes in, he wants to help the people around him, like specifically Deb. Uh, it turns out that the person he helps is Gina. But, um, he, he's almost like a filler character, sort of. Uh, he's there to show that, you know, Deborah's, uh, you know, the, the stuff going wrong in her life is continuing, you know, because it's implied that she and Burko were together, but now they're not anymore or something happened like the previous day or two um, involving those two and, you know, it, it just reminded Deborah of, you know, other events. So, you know, he, he's kind of there to show that. And he, he's kind of there to, to help out Gina. Um, but other than that, he doesn't get much screen time. So it's kind of hard to say how the actor was in that. Um, you know, so I don't know. It's, it's, I wish he'd had more screen time so we could kind of get to know his character a little bit more. Hmm. Just a couple more here to get through. Uh, I'm going to put quotation marks around the character name because we know it's not the real character name. But Brandon Sexton as quote unquote Warren Beatty. How is he for you? I loved him. The the little bastard. Um, I thought he was a fantastic character. And like just everything he said, it, it was amazing writing and he delivered his lines beautifully. Uh, he's that teenage kid that you just want to punch in the mouth. Uh, and we've all known too many like this. And hey, some of us may have been that kid. Uh, I think there were times when I was Warren and he he's just that little ass and you want to smack him. And when you have a person who can come in and without like actually doing anything like, like at no point does he like hurt anybody in the whole movie, but you, you want to just punch him in the face. And if you can deliver a performance that makes the audience want to punch you, then you've done your job. And I think that the guy who played Warren, he definitely pulled that off. You, you just want to smack the dude. <laughs> uh, and then at the end, you're like, oh man, I kind of feel bad for him now, you know? And then when you see him, like uh, when Mitch goes in, you know, and he's trying to run everything and then Warren pops up and he's like, I, I work here. Um, you're just like, all right, I'm I'm happy for you, kid. Um, so yeah, I, I think he did a fantastic job. Uh, I think he may have actually had like the best acting in the whole film, just because I really wanted to hit him. 
Rule number one, if your character is an ass and you make the audience hate the character, you have done your job very, very, very well. Uh, yes. it, it's true, though. I mean, you can take a look at, you know, quote unquote Warren, which did we ever find out his real name? No, no. <laughs> he is only referred to as Warren. And the only time you ever I mean, of course, he's not Warren Beatty. That was Dick Tracy. You know, um, and I love that no one in there, despite the fact that they're all older than him, none of them know who Warren Beatty is. Um, but the only time you hear any reference to it is when he shows up near the end and he just yells at him that his name isn't Warren. And they're all like, I thought his name was Warren. Um, but no, you, you never find out his name. And his name tag even says Warren. So, yeah, he's just Warren Beatty. But it's in that moment where he's like, you know, what, what, you know, Lucas stole $9,000. What, you know, what, Joe's going to give me a job too? And everyone's like, he might. That just tells you, you know, it's almost like everyone working at Empire Records is kind of like this, you know, uh, lost boys from Peter Pan kind of feel where it's all these wayward souls who this is the only place where they actually feel like they can be themselves. And, you know, for a character like War, and that's clearly needed because, you know, anyone who acts out like that at that age clearly is in need of some not not punishment but guidance yeah he's probably got a horrible home life you know there's like all these different assumptions you can make just based off of you know the way he behaves and stuff which again shows that the writers put a lot of thought into who these characters were before they wrote their lines um and it also reflects on joe he collects broken things and makes them feel like family, you know? And so you learn even more about Joe from Warren. Um, so yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great observation on Warren. Like it's just like everyone else. He's having a really bad time and, you know, behaving oddly because of it. Mm-hmm. One more to cover because we're missing someone very, very obvious here. The man himself, Rex Manning, as played by Maxwell Caulfield. How is Rex for you? Uh, he's another one I really want to punch in the face. I want to set the hairspray and his hair on fire. Um, and again, if you can pull off a performance where people want to hit you, you did a good job. He, The character is a total dick, you know? And he, he, he's like the, the stereotypical spoiled celebrity. He's like, oh, I don't want to sit in the chair. I don't like the chair. And just kind of stands there making his like servants go and fetch him a new chair, you know. Um, and when fans are like, you know, can you sign this? He, he acts so put upon, you know, uh, even insulting the people who bring their albums and stuff to get signed by him. You know, it's like. He's just, a, he's just a jerk and he plays it really well. He, his character doesn't really have any depth. He's just a jerk, but the guy played the jerk really well. And his hair is amazingly bad. <laughs> now, I don't know if it's just me, but as I'm watching him as as Rex Manning, and I'm I'm always curious where some of these... You know, these characters, you know, who's the inspiration for them? And, you know, you have to start all of a sudden start thinking about, you know, well, what singers out there may have actually fit that that mold? Because obviously the script was written by, if I remember reading about this correctly, the, the script was written by someone who used to work at Tower Records. And, you know, a lot of the their past co-workers were like, nope, I know who that person is. I know who that person is. So now I'm just curious if there was a Rex Manning type singer that came in all diva like into a into a Tower Records somewhere on the road, I mean, like as I'm watching this, I'm like maybe Gino Vanelli, but he's Canadian. Maybe uh, the and the 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 first like the the most the biggest name I guess that popped up in my mind was Michael Damien, who of course was on Young and the Restless, and then you know had his music career, including the song "Rock On" for the Dream a Little Dream soundtrack, and apparently wrote uh, sang the song for the Saved by the Bell, which. I don't know how many times we're going to say Saved by the Bell in this episode, but I'm just curious if there is a real Rex Manning out there. Right? Um, Yeah, there's like a handful of different people that I could think of that 
I would say, okay, that this could have been like inspiration behind it. But I think part of it was David Hasselhoff, not like the jerk, but like when you watch the music video and stuff, I don't, for some reason, it just made me, it gave me like some David Hasselhoff vibes. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. Which if you're ever looking for a mind trip, you know, bigger than the, than the one with the Guar video, just go find the David Hasselhoff music video uh, hooked on a feeling. Trust me, watch it, and then pinch yourself to make sure you're still in reality here. <laughs> Before we get to our MVPs, though, there, there was one note that really came up when I was reading about this. Apparently, prior to 2020, they were preparing a stage play based on Empire Records. And of course, things got put on hold because someone coughed and we all had to stay home for three years. But, right. but, if Empire Records, the stage play, ever comes out, do you think this is a good opportunity for them to include some of that backstory that we missed? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I would love to learn more about these different characters uh, because there there are so many of them and there's so much that's going on behind the scenes that, you know, influences the thing. Because, like, the whole thing, for anyone who hasn't seen it, the whole thing takes place on one day, April 8th, when this singer, this like famous singer and actor shows up to sign, you know, uh, photos and uh, albums and stuff. And the whole movie takes place during this one day uh, with a brief little intro from the night before when Lucas is closing the store and steals all the money and runs off to Atlantic City with it. Um With the exception of that, it takes place in one day, and these characters, they all have lives prior to this day, and the events in their lives is what, you know, propels all of them on these journeys that they take during this one day, and we don't get to see any of that. We only catch snippets of it, and we have to discern some of it from their behavior and some of the little clues that they drop. So something like a, uh, a stage production, I think would be something cool to, to learn a bit more and explore the backstories of these characters. Now, Twitter also spoke out uh, in defense of this movie as well. Uh, Brian over at my weekly mixtape chimed in with, it's an absolute crime against humanity that this movie was rated so slow or so low. The Itch Rock Radio and Podcast chimed in with, it's so iconic that we named a yearly music and movies podcast episode after it. And David R. Owens gave it a perfect 10. But now I turn it to you. Who is your MVP of Empire Records? Mm. I'm really torn between Deb and Lucas. Uh both of those, I think, are amazing characters. Uh, and while Mark is the one who kind of saves the day, um, you know, I think, you know, Lucas, he's the one who gets the ball rolling. Um, and uh, Deb is just a really relatable character. Uh, so I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to say, but I'd say one of those two. 50-50 mix. I definitely had Robin Tunney on my short list for my MVP, but I could not... I, I, I couldn't walk away without naming my MVP as Anthony LaPaglia, who played Joe. He just seems like, it, of everyone in the film, the film doesn't happen if Joe isn't the character that he is. And that's, you know, that, that there's a lot of depth that's, you know, that's inferred from what Anthony LaPaglia, you know, does in this. Like, it's just such a stellar performance from him. And I still can't believe it's been this long since I actually finally got around to watching this so jason thank you for this one before we go i want you to you know take a moment tell us once again about dragons and genesis and where we can find the podcast uh so as far as where to find it do a search for dragons and genesis on any podcast app and look for the big orange logo that has a silhouette of godzilla and the jerusalem skyline that's me you can also find me over at dragonsandgenesis.com and facebook.com slash dragons and genesis uh, the podcast is a sort of uh, 
Bible study that is not focused on the religion in the books, but instead on the actual material in the book. So you don't have to worry about someone trying to uh, sway you toward a particular denomination. You can just learn what's actually contained in the stories. And uh, it's done in context instead of trying to put a modern spin on things. Dude, thank you so much for this. And to you, our listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of It's Not That Bad. Now, you guys know the drill. If there is a film out there that you think is either unfairly maligned or just so bad that there's no way in heck that we can find anything good to say about it, hit us up on Twitter at NotThatBadCast or go to our website at NotThatBadCast.com. Let us know and we will watch it. We will dissect it and we will find the good things to say because we are looking for those A grades in B movies. Until next time, I'm Jay. You guys are awesome for listening. This is It's Not That Bad. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.